All right, well, good morning, everybody. I uh, want to welcome those of you who join us online from all over, including remote locations like Arizona and India and Germany and Canton, you know, places like that. And, and I want to welcome, nice to see so many of you in the Ward uh, Sanctuary this morning. Welcome. How nice to see you face to partial face. Uh, I don't take for granted at all the fact that we get to be together today to worship and learn. We're in a series called How to Make a Bad Decision, and a lot of you have pulled me aside or written me and said, I already know how to do that. I've got a fair amount of experience uh, in that. And of course, the reason we're studying a bad decision is to learn how to not make them. And, uh, you know... Uh, if we can really learn what a bad decision, you know, looks like, feels like, tastes like, smells like, then we can identify when we're about to make a bad decision and we can reverse course. In this series, we're looking at four case studies, if you will, all of them found in the Bible. And each decision has a big overarching principle or a lesson that we are drawing. People who are new to the Bible might be surprised to learn uh, how human how real the people in the Bible actually are. And maybe you assume that the people whose stories got captured in the Bible were just models of, uh, of virtue and spirituality. And um, you thought maybe the lesson of the Bible was be more like the people of the Bible. And friends, we are already a lot like the people of the Bible. Sin-prone, mistake-making, image-bearing people capable of both good and evil. If you've been tracking with us, you know we looked at the story of short-sighted, short-term thinking in a man named Esau. Uh, we looked at the immediate rejection of wise counsel from a man named Rehoboam. And today we come to another bad decision that led not only to a moral train wreck, but to murder. Today we're looking at one terrible chapter in the life of David. And I like to tell people that life comes in chapters. When, when someone's in a particularly difficult season, maybe brought on by their own self-will, uh, maybe brought on no fault of their own when they're in a season of suffering, I like to remind them, this is not your story, this is one chapter. And this chapter is gonna end and a new chapter will begin. David's life had many chapters. In an earlier chapter of his life, the boy David took on a giant who had been blazingly mocking God. In bold faith and with a touch of adolescent bravado, this boy shepherd told the giant that he was going to lose his head because the real person the giant was fighting was God. And that's kind of how that story played out. David was a superb athlete. The Bible mentions him jumping fences and outrunning troops and uh, killing lions, killing bears. He was good with a slingshot, and he became an excellent warrior. He was also a musician and a poet. Now, in my high school, there were the athletes, the, the warriors, the jocks, and there were the band kids, and these two groups really didn't mix it up at all. But David was both. He was the warrior musician. He was the musical warrior, and he was in touch with God. The Bible says that David had a, a heart for God, um, that he was a man after God's own heart. The Bible also describes David as being handsome, with beautiful eyes. He had charisma, a natural leader. David went from boy shepherd to court musician to top soldier 
to king. And it'll be no surprise that he was a popular and effective king. The nation unified and prospered under his leadership. This is the golden age of Camelot. And it's hard to imagine that David is a, uh, could ever fall. But fall he did. And David fell farther than most anyone else in the Bible because of the height from which he began. From this alpine spiritual height, David stepped off a cliff and the fall was long and dark and cold. He had logged 20 years of great decisions and then one horrible decision would plague the nation and his family for generations to come. Now maybe we should have seen it coming. There were signs. His life did have some cracks. When David came to power and made Jerusalem the capital city, it said that at that time he added more wives and more concubines from Jerusalem. How many wives did he have? We don't know. We know he had seven wives before he took Jerusalem. How many wives did he add? We don't know. But we know that David had a harem made up of free wives and slave wives called concubines. And all of this in that day and place was legal and not uh, unaccustomed for a king to have this practice, but it may have been a sign of brokenness inside David. His harem did not satisfy him. David may have battled sexual temptation or sexual addiction or just a continual lack of contentment no matter how much he would achieve or gain. People have speculated over the years about Bathsheba's role. Some think she wasn't entirely innocent. She knew uh, her house was next to David's house. She knew that her roof could be clearly seen uh, from David's view. Uh, Was she intentionally seducing David by bathing in his clear sight line? Others say, there you go again, blaming women. Uh, She did nothing wrong. This is a powerful king who abused his power by calling for a married woman to be brought to his chamber. Was it consensual? What does that term even mean in a day of kings who can order subjects about? When I think personally this is all on David. We read that David saw a woman bathing and we assume that he saw a fully naked woman in a bathtub that would have drawn his attention, but that may have not been the case of what's actually going on. The word bathing can also be translated washing, and some of uh, reason that Bathsheba could have been dressed just washing her face or washing part of her body. Bathing in a bathtub is more of a Western notion, and certainly a full bath on top of a roof in a crowded city it would be unlikely, but whatever Bathsheba was doing, She caught David's eye, and David liked what he saw. David's descent is an example of the way sin works, according to uh, the New Testament writer James. This is what James says, how sin works. When tempted, no one should say, God is tempting me, for God cannot be tempted by evil, nor does he tempt anyone. But each person is tempted when they are dragged away by their own evil desire and enticed. Then, after desire has conceived, it gives birth to sin. After sin, when it is full grown, it gives birth to death. 
right? James says sin starts with just a, a simple desire and then it conceives, this is the metaphor, when it conceives you're in trouble because it gives birth to sin and sin has a way of growing and then sin gives birth to death. There's a progression here. And when you look at David's life, we're looking at bad decisions. You might be thinking at this point, David didn't make just one bad decision. He made a series of bad decisions. Uh, And you would be right. Looking at Bathsheba while she bathed. Sending someone to find out about her. Learning that she was married and sending for her anyway. Powering up as king and sleeping with her. Covering up the pregnancy through murder. I mean, where do we start? How many bad decisions did he make in this run? And I would argue that the most serious decision was the first one, the bad decision that led to all the other bad decisions. It's one we haven't even talked about yet. It's an almost throwaway line at the beginning of this narrative of David's descent. This is how the scripture reading began. In the spring, at the time when kings go off to war, David sent Joab out with the king's men in this line, but David remained in Jerusalem. In the time when kings go off to war, when kings are supposed to go off to war, David stayed home. In that day, uh, kings would stay home for administrative duties in the winter months and the spring. They would go off on their travel and their military campaigns. This is what David did. David's been doing this. He's king now for 10 years, but this time he stayed home. It seems like he might be cutting back. Commentators disagree on whether David is abdicating his responsibility as king by staying home and by entrusting Joab with the military campaign. But I don't know, I think David's in middle life and you might argue a good leader would delegate and he's delegating the capable hands of Joab. Besides, in 2 Samuel, later in this book, we'll learn that the soldiers didn't want David going to the front lines. They didn't want, uh, they said, the lamp of Israel extinguished. They wanted to protect their king. Whatever the reason, David finds himself home with a lot of extra time on his hands. And this is often when people get in trouble. When they've got too much time and availability. Right, David's home alone. All of his captains are gone. There's very little accountability. Nobody's asking, hey, where, where is David? Isn't, isn't David supposed to be in this meeting? Uh, no one's keeping track. He's got nowhere to go. The warrior ended up on the couch. So instead of all his time and energies being disciplined, channeled, accounted for, busy and engaged, he was in a situation where his time and energies were undisciplined, unchanneled, unaccounted for, not busy, not engaged, and this is when it got messy. Because what he did with his time and energy was to engage in voyeurism, which led to adultery, which led to murder, which in the end led to ongoing disaster. So what was this bad decision that David made? What's this bad decision that everybody here today is capable of making? Here's the big lesson of the day. If you want to make a bad decision, make yourself vulnerable. David stayed home when he maybe should have been somewhere else. He put himself in a vulnerable position when his energy should have been going somewhere else. This word vulnerable is interesting in itself. It comes from a Latin word. It really means able to be wounded. 
When you're vulnerable, you're open to attack, open to be wounded. Now, vulnerable uh, can be used in positive ways, and a lot has been written in recent years about the importance of vulnerability in relationships. Brene Brown has done a lot of excellent work on this in her book called Daring Daring Greatly, the subtitle, How the Courage to be Vulnerable Transforms the Way We Live, Love, Parent, and Lead. She says if you're going to be in a relationship, you, you do open yourself up to be wounded, but there is no intimacy without risk. There's a positive vulnerability, and this is not what we're talking about today. We are not talking about positive vulnerability necessary with your spouse or your child or a close friend. We're talking about negative vulnerability that leads you open to sin, open to temptation, open to bad decisions. When, when David stayed home, he didn't plan to make a bad decision. He didn't plan to commit adultery. He didn't plan to, to, to commit murder. One thing just led to another. His decision to stay home with idle time and idle energy hanging out up on his roof put him in a vulnerable position where he was open to things he would not usually be open to. So let's talk about three of the most common ways that we make ourselves vulnerable. And this is from Pastor and Professor James Emery Wright. Uh, Three ways that we can find ourselves up on a roof like David did. Three ways we make ourselves vulnerable. And the first is simply restless energy. Right, staying home when you should be off at war, when you should be involved in some other kind of battle. Uh, There's an old line that says, idle hands are a devil's playground. Meaning if you don't have anything to do, uh, you can get into trouble. And and we know this is true. When is it easiest to stick to your diet? Is it when you're out being busy? Or is it when you're home with nothing to do three feet from your refrigerator? When are you most prone to worry? Is it when you're engaged in lots of activity? Or when you're sitting all by yourself with a mind that has a lot of time to wander? And it's not just about how busyness keeps us from thinking and doing things we shouldn't think and do. It's about how we all have a certain level of energy that needs to be directed. And if it's not channeled toward productive endeavors, it'll find a place to go. And David was on the roof that day with excess restless energy. So ask yourselves, are you fully invested in the life that God has given you? Are you fully invested in your family, in your work, in the cause of Christ in such a way that you don't have a lot of restless energy laying around? Or are you ordering your life in such a way that you've got all the time in the world and you find yourself in these positions looking for things to do and you find yourself increasingly vulnerable? If you're in that camp, it's time to get off the roof and get engaged. A second thing that keeps us uh, vulnerable or open is, is simply emotional depletion. When you are depleted, when your emotional tank is empty, you are vulnerable because we look for things to fill that tank and we're looking for quick emotional hits, quick rushes, which is why people who are, who are emotionally drained uh, can start looking at pornography or open themselves up to an affair, emotional or physical or to a binge of some kind. And the reason is because those things offer quick hits, quick feelings, but they don't last. They will not fill your emotional tank. I've heard it talked about in terms of a, of a dashboard on a car. Think of your life as a dashboard, and you've got a, a physical gauge, 
an emotional gauge and a spiritual gauge and you can kind of monitor these and see how you're doing and I find the one that gets most often ignored is the emotional gauge a lot of us aren't even aware there is an emotional gauge to watch and I think that's what lies behind a lot of the biblical instruction about the Sabbath right that word Sabbath uh, does not mean Sunday it doesn't mean Saturday it doesn't even mean worship service Sabbath means to stop, to cease, to rest, to renew. And uh, as you know, the, the Jewish people in that day continue to this day honor Saturday as a Sabbath. Early Christians moved it to Sunday because they wanted to honor the day that Jesus rose from the dead. But more important than which day you celebrate Sabbath is that you have Sabbath that you have in your rhythm of life rest and renewal. It, and it's not, uh, it's not just about the absence of work or the absence of hurry, but the presence of that which fills you up. Do you know what fills your emotional tanks? Because it varies from person to person. Maybe refilling your tanks means spending time out in nature. Maybe it's watching a football game. Maybe it's being with a friend who fills you up surrounding yourself with the right kinds of people. Maybe it's uh, some kind of craft project or building of some kind. Maybe it's, uh, uh, maybe it's watching a, a Hallmark uh, love story. But if that does fill you up, don't invite a man to join you because it's his Sabbath as well. I think Sabbath is one of the biblical laws that Christians are most tempted to violate, that pastors are most tempted to violate. And honestly, recently, I've not been good at keeping Sabbath. You know, I work uh, weekends, and uh, I'm, I'm trying to get back on this myself. But this Friday, because uh, I, I, I was feeling a little depleted, and because I knew I'd be talking to you about Sabbath keeping, I decided the Friday afternoon I would head out to the woods at a park and walk, which is something I love to do. And I could just feel my tanks being restored with a couple hours out in nature. That does it for me. And then I, I was like, what else would fill my tanks? And I'm driving home, and I, I knew what would fill my tanks. I pulled into the IHOP restaurant, and I got my favorite pancakes. Don't judge me. Uh, I try to be careful six days a week, but on Sabbath, it's not about being careful. On Sabbath, it's about eating the foods you enjoy and doing the things you love to do and being with the people you enjoy being around to fill your emotional tanks on a regular rhythm of basis so you can keep going on. And then a third way we make ourselves vulnerable is uh, when, you, when you think you're strong. When you get to the point where you think, I'm, uh, that would never happen to me. I'm too strong. I'm too spiritual. I'm too mature to, be, to give in to that kind of temptation. That's when you're most vulnerable. You are less vulnerable when you think, that, you know, that, that could happen to me. When you see something on the news about that politician or that pastor who fell in some way, uh, we can judge them. What they did was wrong, but there's a sense that we should look with humility and say that I, that I could do that. Given the right circumstances, I could be vulnerable to that. When you don't think you're vulnerable, you let your guard down. People who don't think they're vulnerable don't think they need to be careful in those areas. And you don't think you need fences or accountability practices and those all go away. But listen, if the great King David was vulnerable, you and I are vulnerable too. David makes himself vulnerable in spite of being a man after God's own heart. And David becomes just another politician caught in a sexual scandal and cover-up 
More than that, he orchestrates the murder of a loyal official and friend. And God was not amused. God sent the prophet Nathan to confront David. Nathan plays this really beautiful role in David's life. He's the guy that speaks truth to David, some hard truth. But when you have hard truth, sometimes you come at it in a softer way, and Nathan's going to come to David and tell him a story. The Lord sent the prophet Nathan to David. When he came to him, he said, he's going to tell a story, there were two men in a certain town, one rich and the other poor. The rich man had a very large number of sheep and cattle, but the poor man had nothing except one little ewe lamb he had bought. He raised it, and it uh, it grew with him and his children. It shared his food, drank from his cup, and even slept in his arms. It was like a daughter to him. Now a traveler came to the rich man, but the rich man refrained from taking one of his own sheep or cattle to prepare a meal for the traveler who had come to him. Instead, he took the ewe lamb that belonged to the poor man and prepared it for the one who had come to him. David burned with anger against the man in the story and said to Nathan, as surely as the Lord lives, the man who did this must die. He must pay for that lamb four times over because he did such a thing and had no pity. You know where this is going? Then Nathan said to David, you are the man. This is what the Lord, the God of Israel says, I anointed you king over Israel and I delivered you from the hands of Saul. I gave you your master's, I gave the master's house to you and your master's wives into your arms. I gave you all Israel and Judah and if all this had been too little, I would have given you even more. Why did you despise the word of the Lord by doing what is evil in his eyes? You struck down Uriah the Hittite with a sword. You thought this was a secret, David. There are no secrets from God. You struck down Uriah the Hittite with a sword and took his wife to be your own. You killed him with the sword of the Ammonites. Now therefore the sword will never depart from your house because you despised me and took the wife of Uriah the Hittite to be your own. And only at this point, once David is found out, once he's confronted, only here does David own the truth. And the next line says this. Then David said to Nathan, I have sinned against the Lord. So at least David gets this part right. He could have said, no, I didn't do that. That wasn't me. He could have owned it half-heartedly. Yeah, I made a mistake. Really wasn't my fault. It's her fault. One thing led to another. But he doesn't do that. At least he gets this right. He owns it. I have sinned. And this is the redeeming part of David's life. He owns it. God is going to be gracious with David. David's life is spared. God is gracious. But the consequences to David's family, the consequences to the house of David are severe. God can forgive and there can still be severe consequences of our decisions. So if you were to go off in a quiet corner all by yourself right now and do some truth-telling to yourself, Where are you vulnerable right now? Where have you left yourself open? Where are you able to be wounded? Is it related to excess restless energy? Is it that your emotional tanks are depleted right now? Are you prideful? Are there areas where you just think yourself as above temptation? Friends, if you've got any of that going on, you are up on that roof in a vulnerable position. And it's time to back yourself back down. 
Get off the roof. Do what you need to do. Be where you need to be. Now remember for David, this is but a chapter. He will go on and be remembered as the greatest king that Israel has ever known. He will be remembered as a man after God's own heart. This does not take him out. But again, the consequences of his decisions would affect him and his family for generations to come. We need to make good decisions. Will you pray with me wherever you are this morning? Oh God, you are kind and merciful and forgiving and yet you will not be mocked. Your righteousness will not be compromised. Give us wisdom and courage and strength to make good decisions that honor you and honor the life that you have in mind for us. We pray now for those among us who have put themselves in a vulnerable position, for those who find themselves up on a a roof wondering how they got there. Give them strength to resist the temptation that is now so easily within their reach and to come down. Help us all to build accountabilities and to devote our energies toward productive endeavors. Help us to always be where we're supposed to be. May our lives be full of purpose and bring you glory. This we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. And amen.